Welcome to GodPod. This is a podcast from St Paul's Theological Centre, based in St Melitus College, which is a community of people studying and teaching Christian theology here in the UK and around the world. Graham Tomlin, Mike Lloyd and the occasional guest join me, Jane Williams, in discussing God, life, theology, in fact, just about anything. Welcome to GodPod, and here we are again for yet another discussion of theology, cake, biscuits, weather. The theology is mainly the, on the subject of the discussion, isn't it? The cake does get a mention. Yeah, we don't it's do not a major topic. We don't do theology of cake, do we? Is there one? Uh, oh, I, I, there certainly is, and we need to raise it, raise it on another occasion. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, there may be something. We're not going to do that today, though. No. So uh, from the voices, if you are regular listeners to GodPod, you will know that um, uh, it's me, Graham Tomlin, and also Michael Lloyd. Yes, uh, so they've been warned. Exactly. And very sadly, we don't have Jane Williams with us today. She's had to slip off somewhere else to um, do something else, so she's not around. Uh, but we do have a guest, which is uh, wonderful. We have um, the Reverend Dr. Simon Cuff. Hello. So Simon, welcome. Thank you. Good. Thank you for having me. The first time you've done a God Pod? It is, yeah. First time you've ever listened to a God Pod, even? It, if I listen to it, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, yeah. That was my confession earlier. You confessed. Yeah. You've never, never listened to a God Pod, no. unlike people listening to this now. You, so you are a complete rookie. I am. I've got no idea what's about to happen. Yeah, well, the surprise is my way for you. Yeah. Exactly. Which is interesting. Yeah. Which is interesting, given what we're going to talk yeah. about. Precisely. That's yeah. right. So, um, so Simon, you're your um, lecturer here in theology at St. Melitus College. That's right. And um, you did a, done, a, done a doctorate in the past. What was your doctoral study on? So uh, my doctorate was on how non-Christians read scripture and how Christians, particularly Christians in the academy, relate to that, how they, okay. how they um, understand that and react. Do, yeah. I mean, apart from the obvious thing of Jewish people reading yeah. the Old Testament, what yeah. we call the Old Testament, um, do non-Christians read scripture? So that was one of the things I was looking at, was the surprising turn amongst some atheist philosophers okay. to using scripture as a resource. Um, and why they were doing it and how they were using the text um, in some surprising ways. Oh. Uh, mostly um, in uh, understanding politics, how Paul says we should act in the world. And was there a sort of take-home sort of thought, or a network yeah. of thoughts that came to you as you um, were doing this work? That you can't control who reads the Bible, and right. they might have something, yeah. people that read the Bible that aren't you might have something to teach you, yeah. was the, was the take-home. Yeah. Uh, people, of course, in throughout history have tried to control who they reads have. scripture. Yeah. And how. Yeah. Um, um, and so one It's never been terribly successful. No, no, and that's what I um I was telling biblical scholars that if they try to control how we read the Bible, it's never been it's not successful. Mm. You have to work with people, you can't work against them. Um, and we to can inform rather than control, in fact. Or yeah. try and inform offer inform yeah. informedness. And we should be glad people are reading the Bible. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> whatever they're they're liking. Yeah. And it's um it's a yeah it's fascinating when you encounter someone like Jordan Peterson as a as a um, figure who um, many people listen to these days as someone who's yeah. you know quite sure whether is he a Christian or not we don't yeah. quite know he's always a bit cagey about it but he yeah. has these extraordinary readings of the Bible yeah um, from a kind of you know not particularly from a faith standpoint but actually yeah. looking at the Genesis stories and, and um, seeing what they have to say to culture today, which, yeah. is, which is a really interesting sort of angle into sort of Bible reading from someone who's not 
specifically coming from a faith perspective. I mean, one of the things about the Bible is it um, it is a conversation partner. It it, it just doesn't let you just use it. It does something to how you see mm. things, how you see it, how you see the world in the light of it. Do you see any evidence in those political philosophers that that same process is happening in them to them? They have a look at this stuff, and does it shape their presuppositions in any in any way? Yeah, I think you can see how before they come into contact with scripture, the stuff they're interested in is possibly different, more materialistic, more secular, mm. and so. Um, some of the, th- the thinkers, people like Alain Bourdieu, a French philosopher, a Marxist, and Slavoj Žižek, a Slovenian, they start writing more about love and uh, mm. what's right, and they think more about community um, values we might call Christian, mm. and so it reorients their their thinking. Um, hopefully, because God, they've encountered God, but they don't know it. Yeah, um, interesting. So there's stuff to work with there. I, yeah, I, yeah, I hope. Good. Well, um, we're going to pitch into a number of questions that have been raised and sent in to us by various listeners to GodPod around the world. And um, we're going to start with one from uh, someone called Matt McClintock. So, Matt, thank you very much for sending your uh, question in. And the question goes like this. Uh, Matt says, I really enjoy listening to your discussions and the variety of topics you cover. And um, his question is this. Is God able to experience surprise given his omniscience? If not, does that mean God cannot really know the range of emotions experienced by human beings? I'd always been told that God understands us because he lives or lived a fully human life through Jesus. Is there evidence that Jesus experienced the emotion of surprise? So there's our question. Uh, can you surprise God? It's, it's a really interesting question. And um, I'm particularly kind of interested in it because my doctoral supervisor, Paul Phyllis, this was a big thing for him. Um, Particularly in the question of whether Jesus uh, experienced surprise, yes. I mean, when two things in particular seem to have astonished him. One is the lack of faith he'd found within his own people, and the other was the amount of faith he found in people um, beyond those the borders of his own people. This relates to our conversation we yeah. just had. Yes. Yeah. Um, so astonishment is 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 very much part of uh, Jesus now. If Jesus is our window on God, as we believe him to be, what does that say about God? Now, you can't uh, kind of use everything that we know about Jesus and simply uh, ascribe it to God. You know, if he was five foot six, that doesn't mean God is five foot six. He didn't have two um, years. The question then is, is that, a, that capacity for astonishment, for surprise, something that we can project onto God or something that we, that we shouldn't? So what's the answer? Ah, yeah. well, well, I'm glad you asked me that. Uh, there are one or two bits in the scriptures that suggest that he is capable of surprise. So uh, I, I don't quite know what to make of it, but in Jeremiah 3, um, verse 19, he says, I thought you would call me father. He said, how gladly would I treat my children and give you a desirable land, the most beautiful inheritance of any nation. I thought you'd call me father and not turn away from following me. But like a woman unfaithful to her husband, so you have been unfaithful to me. So the same thing that you see in Jesus, astonishment at lack of faith, uh, you see in God in the Old Testament as well. Uh, now, does that, how does that relate to God's omniscience? I don't know. Um, 
but but there it is and i think we should be careful not to say god can't experience surprise um because it does seem to be there embedded within the, the scriptural tradition I, mean, I suppose really it's just another form of that question about how does god come to know things does god know things because he predestined them or foresaw them or does god know things because he sees in real time oh. and if we think that god has a sense of surprise we that, that seems to lean a bit more towards the real time um, some way that we have a sense in which there's that unknown unwritten chapter for us mm. we've got some sort of free will um, but it's always in tension with that god's foreknowledge mm. and uh, part of the issue there is um, is the future knowable mm. if it's not knowable mm. um, then god can be an omniscient and not know it mm. it's not a challenge to his omniscience the problem there is that there are one or two places where it looks as if God does know the future. Mm. So the, mm. the, the cock crowing three times before Peter denying Jesus before the cock crows three times, it, that's fairly specific. Mm. And that suggests mm. a kind of a slightly different view of time. Mm. But we live with those, the tension of those passages, I think. And I suppose it's, it's kind of related to Christology in a way, isn't it? Because... I suppose many of the early fathers would make a distinction between, you know, Jesus's divine nature and his human nature, and experiences which he had in his 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 human nature, which were not necessarily transferable into his divine nature as such, uh, as a way of sort of, you know, um, if you like, protecting the divine nature from change, mm. um, because change implies either a increase or a diminution of powers and so on. And uh, they were kind of nervous of going in that direction of saying that the divine nature itself is subject to change. And um, but I suppose it depends on you know how you, how you approach your Christology and how closely you feel that the human and the divine are kind of um, held together in mm -hmm. Christ. Uh, and I suppose there was a lot of Christology that would say, um, yes, we hold them apart, but we hold them very much together. So that if Jesus is able to experience surprise and grief and pain and 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 so on in his human nature um his divine nature is not foreign to that uh they don't somehow compromise his divine nature but somehow uh, just as it says in the in the new testament you know god tastes death in jesus christ as it were and i suppose the closer you hold together the the human and the divine nature of christ the more you're able to say that that yes god can experience surprise in christ and through christ and maybe that's the secret to it, that outside of Christ, maybe he isn't, or, or at least it's hard to imagine God experiencing surprise, but because he is the God who reveals himself in the, the person of Christ, uh, we can talk about God as being this person who is able to experience these different things. Part of the problem is a passage like the Jeremiah 3 passage. How much of it is a figure of speech? How much is it a yeah. way of saying... Mm what you are doing is uh, is astonishing your your infidelity is something that cannot be thought evil is always a kind of something that has no rational basis or grounding it's absurd it's absurd um and maybe that's just a heightened way of saying that um yeah yeah on the other hand maybe it isn't mm -hmm. maybe something that is is free and undetermined, is unknowable in advance. And I suppose it's, it's also a way of saying that God is personal, isn't it? 
because the, yes. a God who is not personal, a God who is a, a kind of abstract kind of blob, um, <laughs> cannot feel anything and, and is, a, is a kind of rather sort of mysterious presence or absence, uh, but doesn't relate to us as a person. But the one thing it seems to me the Christian faith does say about God is he is a, he is a person. Uh, or persons in relation, if we talk about a Trinitarian understanding of God. And there's something fundamentally personal about God, and that we are persons by analogy with God, rather than the other way around. He's not a person like us, we're a person like him. Yeah. And the reason we can experience emotions is because in some ways he, he does too. And even in you know Genesis, at the end of the creation story, you know, it says, God saw all that he had made and it was very good. He, you know, he rejoices over um, creation, and we don't that God, that God rejoices over His creation. And, and shortly after that, we hear Him grieving over creation. Yeah, that's right. And, that, and it's a way of saying that God is, God is a person who interacts and who has, you know, things He likes and things He doesn't like. We're hitting one of the tricky points, I think, in theology, where our notions of person we so easily project our understanding yeah, of humanity, exactly. yeah. and that's one of those knotty points where we have to let God transform our notions of what it means to be a person. In, like yeah, of the exactly. Trinity. yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, where lots of theologies fall foul. Yeah, so I mean, you've been doing a little bit of work on um, God's emotions and um, emotion in God and that yeah. kind of thing. What are your What are your sort of thoughts and more generally on the question of, of, of how we express this sort of emotional language for God? Well, I think it's related to that point of whether we project our understandings of our emotions onto God, or we let mm. our emotions be transformed by how we see God holding those emotions. Yeah. Um, reading Scripture. Uh, in the Old Testament in particular, that danger that runs through the text of idolatry, making God in our own image. We do that each and every day in different ways. We put little gods up, or even in our own faith, we um, mistake things and we worship them as if they're God. Like uh, our theologies. Yeah, theologies, everything we do. Yeah. Um, and so I've been looking at how some of um, the ways we might ascribe emotions to God, like anger, love, um, jealousy, how we might actually allow our love, our anger, our jealousy to be transformed by what we see of God. Um, for example, uh, God's anger, for some theologies, it's very difficult to say that God is angry because that's very off-putting. We don't really like it and we don't like to think that God might be angry at us. But if we think about Jesus turning the, the tables uh, in the temple, we see a, an incarnate God who is passionate and isn't just nice, but is passionate. And one of the ways of translating um, Jesus wept in, in John is Jesus was really angry. Um, mm -hmm. That Greek word is more usually translated Jesus is really angry, but we don't like to think of Jesus as angry. Mm. Um, and if we see uh, God as angry, what does that mean? And a wonderful Old Testament scholar called um, Dina Grant has said that in the Old Testament, God's anger is different to our anger in that our anger makes us red, but God's anger changes things. So how can we make our anger change things around us? Sure. If somebody yeah. makes us angry, how can we Ideally in a, in a good direction. In a good way, yeah, in the way that God wants. Because <laughs> yeah, human anger can change things around yeah. it yeah. in a rather destructive way. But it changes us first. But yeah. Are we being changed yes. in the right way, that transformation? Well, I always, I always think that the different emotions of, of God are like putting a prism in front of love. So anger is love in the presence of injustice. Mm -hmm. Or, or cruelty. Um, compassion is love in the presence of suffering. Delight is love in the presence of love. Uh, that, that all these emotions are actually forms of love put through the, the prism of a particular set of circumstances uh, and are appropriate to those circumstances, are what love is 
in the presence of those those relationships or situations. And I I, th I find that a helpful thing because we we kind of accept that God should be love. We we find it more difficult to think yes. of Him as being yeah. angry or, or the, whatever. The jealousy of God is an interesting one in this regard, isn't it? Because when we say we're jealous, you know, or someone you describe as that, you know, if I'm jealous of that person over there. It means that oh, I'm really cross with them, or not. I want what they've got. Yeah. They've got something I haven't got, and I want it, and I resent them for that thing, and that's jealousy. Mm. Whereas actually, when you think about jealousy in the Bible, when it talks about God as a jealous God, it's not that you know we've got something He hasn't got because mm. He's got everything. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we haven't got, there's nothing we've got that He hasn't got. But, but God's jealousy seems to be more uh, a jealousy for the best for that person. Yeah. You know, he's jealous for Israel because He wants them to have the best. He doesn't want them to be satisfied with petty little idols who are hardly worth worshipping because they're less than the people themselves and you know where he wants them to be he wants them to love himself because he knows that he is the, the 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 true object of love in all that exists and so so to jealousy in that regard god's jealousy is so different from ours it's not this destructive thing that drags you down drags the other person down instead it's it's wanting the very best for your for a person and when you see you know a parent with a child you know the parent wants the best absolute best for their child they're jealous for their child's you know education or their their character or their their health or whatever uh, it's a much more healthy type of jealousy which i think again is an illustration of your point simon about how god's emotion can transform our emotions and how we need to see our emotions through the lens of god's rather than the other way around I, th I, th I think that's right, and <clears throat> in, 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 even in the more human understanding of, of jealousy, not kind of being jealous of what somebody has or their mm. gifts, but but in a relational context, yeah. you know, if the person you are married to um, were to have an affair with somebody else, a, a complete lack of emotion would not be appropriate. Yeah. Yeah. It would not be mm -hmm. a good sign about your character. Yeah. Yeah. All your relationship, uh, all your relationship, yeah. Yeah. Mm. Um, and and that's what's going on in God's jealousy for yeah. His covenant yeah. people. Yeah, so you could say jealousy is is God's love reflect, refracted in another set of circumstances. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. Um, it's in no. the in the it's God's love in the presence of betrayal or yeah, or, sure. or rejection. Yeah. Yes, and in the midst of all those circumstances, God <clears throat> remains God. Um, we were talking earlier about. Um, the divine simplicity of God. God is simply God, oh. and the circumstances in creation change, but God remains the same. Mm -hmm. And that's that's how we experience these different emotions: is the changing circumstances in creation, not yeah. a change in the Creator. And, sure. and I suspect that's to, uh, at the root of the whole issue of God: whether God can change, mm. as well as whether He experiences yeah. emotion. Mm. Um, he doesn't. He doesn't change. He's not mm. capricious, mm. but. How we experience him depends upon the circumstances in which he is operative, mm. um, and that seems to me to be only appropriate and and proper. Mm. Mm. Um, oh, that's a that's been a really interesting discussion on emotions in God and surprise. So um, hopefully we've shed some little light on that one as we've chewed it over. Ha ha ha! <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> that's, a, that's, a, that's a pun in you know in honour of you, Mike. Thank you're you very normally much. the ones I, who does. I, I appreciate that. Yes, yeah, yes, exactly. Keep working at it. Yes. I'll, I'll try. You know. <laughs> I'll never quite reach the, the heights of the master, <laughs> Mike Lloyd, in terms of puns. But anyway, we can move on to another question from uh, somebody called Louise Rowe. So Louise, thank you for sending you in your question. And um, this is a question. The simple question is: uh, Will heaven be vegan? 
And the basis for the question is around animals being God's creation. I'm sure many of us believe them to have souls, maybe. Uh, also that in heaven they can't possibly be killing. Uh, I suppose it's questionable as to whether we have to eat at all when we get to heaven, but maybe that's another question. So um, she says a number of her people in her Bible study group are fans of God Pod. So there you go. Ah. There are one or two of them out there. Um, <laughs> so um, vegetarianism, veganism, um, animals, killing animals for food. What do we think? Just um, it's a it's a really interesting and important question. I think um, I I would want to reshape it slightly in terms of the terminology because uh, heaven suggests something. Thought you might pick un- up on that one. Unphysical and mm-hmm. yeah. uh, separate from the world, whereas yeah. I think what the scriptures offer is is a transformed universe, one that is freed from all the currently Mars, freed from killing and yep. death and pain and sorrow but not free from the eating and not free from eating i don't think but but flooded with the presence yep. and the glory and the beauty of god and, and in everything in harmony now that has a particular um implication for uh, the sort of eating that will happen which was is that it will not be destructive everything being at peace with its creator will now be at peace with everything else mm-hmm. um and that's the prophetic vision of the wolf lying down with the lamb, mm. uh, presumably not having just devoured it. <laughs> um, mm. So, so I think that's that's an important kind of context mm. there. Um, and Genesis certainly seems to present um, meat eating uh, as a temporary expedient because things are no longer right. Things are no longer as they were, as they were intended to be, mm. as they should be. Um, and within that limited and temporary context, uh, it's it's permitted with some controls. Mm. Sure. I think I should put my cards on the table and say I am a vegetarian. Right. Um, yeah. Possibly, hopefully, uh, preparing my way for heaven, if mm. uh, heaven is vegetarian. Um, I think... It's, really, it's actually more of a question about the nature of heaven, isn't it? Mm. Our views of heaven, and I often think that Christians, one of the w- weakest points in our theologies in churches, is how we describe heaven, mm. because we have this sort of cream cheese and fluffy clouds version of heaven, mm. angels and harps and things. And when we look at the New Testament, it's easier to say what the afterlife of heaven is not than than, yeah. than what it is. Sure. We know that it's not exactly the same as it is now. We, Jesus's resurrected body which is the basis of our thought, walks through walls, uh, it can appear and it can disappear. There's discontinuity, but there's also continuity. Um, whether that means that animals are eaten, I'm not sure. Jesus yeah. eats fish, so maybe it's pescatarian, not, yeah. <laughs> not vegetarian. Or maybe yeah. that's part of the temporary expedient. Uh, yeah, I think um, it's quite hard to say. I mean, is he, yeah. he eats the Passover that's, too, doesn't he? So he says, I earnestly desired. As a vegetarian, we never know whether he actually is. Okay. Uh, yep. But I'm yep. pl- a special pleading. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. It's hard to kind of imagine him growing up as a, in a Jewish family and not doing that. Yeah. Like, no, but, no, yeah. No. I, mean, I think one also has to be mm. particularly careful of the uh, context of the first century mm. Mm. Um, people mm. like Jesus. Um, a, that uh, the. Farming was very, very different from what it is now. Mm-hmm. And farming today, I would say, in some ways and in some places, um, is cruel in a way that 
first century farming probably was not. The sheer space given to yeah. a, a farm animal today, a battery farmed animal, is very different from a shepherd leading his sheep and his goats through the open countryside uh, of, of Palestine, Israel. Um, and secondly, our scientific knowledge now is, is different. Uh, in the sense that we have a much better idea of nutrition, what you need to eat in order to survive, uh, ways of producing alternatives. Um, and we can import things much more easily. So it's much more possible to be a vegan or vegetarian today than it would have been then. So that's another, another factor that one needs to bear in mind, uh, I think. Um, and, and there are lots of different reasons people have for going that route. Sometimes uh, the cruelty one, sometimes the wanting to live as in harmony as with the rest of creation as possible, as a future pointer to the future coming and putting right of all things, harmonization of all things. Sometimes people want to do it um, because of the bad conversion rate. <laughs> Uh, of land to, yeah. f to yes. food. It's the, the economic it's argument that actually yeah. producing a pound of meat is very expensive in terms of sort of the, yes. the, the cost of the arable economy, and, and you can actually produce a lot more food by in, in other means than by, um, by, by than by actually producing meat, whether sheep or goats or mm -hmm. cows or whatever it might be. So yeah, so there are a whole host of reasons there, but it sounds like what was you know there's a, there's a question of eschatology here. There's a question of of um, what age we are in, uh, there's a sense of uh, and the, the sense of looking at the the pattern that we see in in the ministry of Jesus. He doesn't seem to be have any particular qualms about killing a fish and eating that fish, but that doesn't necessarily mean that in the long term that isn't the way creation will one day be. Yes. And uh, therefore, there seems to be a kind of range of options for Christians in this regard. Uh, in terms of, you know, what that what that means in, in terms of you know our own eating habits and what and, and how that bears witness to the future, uh, how it bears witness to the brokenness and fallenness of our world and so on. I, I agree with that. I'm not an absolutist. I, I try to push myself as vegan as I can, um, partly as a way of being a pointer to the coming age, mm -hmm. partly because of the cruelty issue. Um, but I'm not an absolutist. I don't think it's wrong. Mm -hmm. Uh, absolutely. I, what I would just say to people is, um, if you want to eat meat, go and have a look at the whole process. Go and look at a battery farm and an abattoir. Um, inform, inform yourself and then decide prayerfully how you're going to live. And uh, talking about economics, we've got another um, question that uh, is coming in from, from Simon Flood, which is, uh, a question really about the parable of the talents. And he was saying how um, he's been reading the, in their small group, Matthew chapter 25, and was wondering what, what Jesus meant uh, when he talked about uh, money in the bank for the, what's the servant who puts the money in the bank uh, so that it could gain some interest. And in the context of that question, uh, where Jesus seems to say it's a good thing to gonna put your money in the bank to gain interest and so on, um, is it true to say that the New Testament is more pro-interest than the Old Testament? The Old Testament has a seven-year rule. Year of Jubilee seems to be quite opposed to usury, um, lending at interest. Uh, but is that taking it too literally? Is the, is the, is the New Testament kind of more in favor of lending at interest than the Old Testament is? And how do we view that practice of, of um, uh, 
lending money uh, to gain it back with interest from um, those to whom it's lent. A mortgage is a good idea. I think one needs to be slightly careful with parables, how much one reads into the details. After all, there's another parable in which the, the king sends somebody off to be tortured. Yes. Uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that we ought to yeah, have a view, good view of Go torture. Go and do that likewise. No. Um, no. No. So, so ju- just put that little uh, caution yep. in there before yep. we start. I think there's something uh, to be said there about this is Jesus using something which people knew was universally condemned mm. to say even doing the universally condemned thing would have been better than the thing you actually did. Mm. Um, so I know some people read this to say that usury is permissible, mm. but it seems to me in the reading of the passage is actually not questioning how wrong usury is. It's saying this is wrong, but what you've done is worse. Mm. And mm. in the context of the parable, that seems to be keeping what God has given you to yourself and not expending it. Mm. Mm. Um, but that that doesn't really help answer the question, is usury more permissible in the New Testament? Mm. Um, yeah, and because in, in Christian theology, there's a, there's a number of different views on it, aren't there? In the, in the early church, it does seem to be there's quite a strong thing against usury. And um, I mean, Basil the Great has, has a very strong sermon where he, he writes um, very powerfully against lending at interest. Mm-hmm. He thinks it's a bad idea, you should not do it, because he thinks what it ends up, and he writes very graphically about you know, a poor person who borrows some money and for a, for a little while he's, you know, full of beans and all his friends come around and he's had a meal and they're all having a great time and he's buying lots of things. And as time goes on, the money dwindles and, the, and he starts getting nervous about the day that's coming. He's got to repay and, and the repayment, sort of, um, you know, looms on the horizon. And he, he says that actually with usury, what actually happens at the end is that the it's not that the rich are giving to the poor, it's the poor end up giving to yes. the rich. Yes. Yeah. Um, yes. So that the rich person who's already got lots of capital ends yeah. up getting that capital back, plus all the interest that's been paid by the poor person. Mm-hmm. Now, you, you roll it on, and um, it's interesting, Martin Luther has again a, a long sermon where he's against usury, but, but, but Calvin, John Calvin is an interesting example of someone who actually begins to strike a sort of different note in the beginning of a very different economic world in, in you know, the beginnings of the Renaissance and 16th century and beyond. And Calvin again writes a letter to one of his um, his friends uh, about usury when he's asked the question. And he basically says, you know, I think he said the basic line is, um, I think it's not a great idea, but actually there's nothing in the New Testament that actually condemns it. Um, and maybe even the one or two things where it, it might be sort of permitted. And in fact, he gives one or two examples of where actually lending money at interest uh, can be a good for both borrower and lender, uh, in that it's a way of people who need access to funds for a business or whatever, getting those funds, and for the profits to be shared between the lender and the borrower. Um, but he does put some very strict conditions around it, uh, particularly about not lend, not you know, um, taking advantage of the poor, which is a really significant thing, I think, particularly in our current, um, current age. Um, uh, about rates of interest and, and what that should be. And um, so he sort of seems to allow it as a practice uh, in the context of a new kind of economy, which was emerging, you know, from the kind of feudal medieval economy. You've got the beginnings of a kind of capitalist economy appearing in the, the 16th century. And he, he does seem to think there's a, there's a place for lending at interest, but under strict conditions. Uh, and it has to be, and he also talks about how this has to be done for the common good. It's not just for the individual lender or borrower. You have to think about the, the impact of this on the whole of society. Well, I found that quite an interesting kind of approach to it. 
I think the purpose of usury is the important thing for us to bear in mind that the usury interest is supposed to allow capital cash to flow freely yeah. so that people that don't have access to money can have access to money. Mm. Um, and I think in the modern era, we're seeing more and more the interest, as you say, being used badly, yeah. um, making poor people suffer even more. Mm. Um, it's that question of how do we get money to move through our economy in a just yeah. way, yeah. Um, yeah. which might suggest that now usury is permissible, mm. even if we think that scripture generally says mm. we're not sure about this. And at the very least, we ought to allow that to, access, to put more question marks in our mm. mind that, than it yeah. currently does. We just yeah. assume it's fine. And yeah. and yet, credit cards, for instance, mm. uh, I'm speaking as somebody who has n no economic knowledge whatsoever, um, but it seems to me that there are two significant problems with them. One is it does encourage people to spend beyond their means, uh, thinking that we, you know, I, don't have, I don't have to have the money, I can get next month's money or whatever, and that can build up. And build up. There's some basil point, if you like. But also, uh, stores will be charged for the privilege of having an access card or a MasterCard or whatever it might be, um, and that will, sure as anything, be passed on to the cons to the cost of the product to the consumer, which means that the non-credit worthy are subsidising the credit worthy. So again, it's it's benefiting the richer as opposed to the poorer. When you add that to loan sharks and all the rest of it, I think there are some really serious questions that we haven't asked ourselves because we haven't uh, taken this strand of biblical teaching seriously. Whether it applies fully now, I don't know. Probably not. But it should be asking us questions that we're not even facing at the moment. And it's a fairly recent uh, phenomenon in terms of credit cards being the main way that people get access to credit. There's yes. a long tradition in the church of community groups coming together, credit unions, yeah. um, cooperatives, but those seem to have fallen by the wayside until very recent years. Yes. They're coming. There's a resurgence, but there's a long history in the church of providing yeah. credit yeah. for people who don't have access to. And the great thing about those things, more locally based credit, is that you can have a relationship with the person yeah. you're borrow you're lending or lending yes. to or borrowing from, and there's a face, yeah. and that's it's much harder to kind of. Um, Usually mum or dad, but... Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, that still happens. Yeah. <laughs> Do they charge interest? Yeah, no. <laughs> but I see, when, when you're actually faced with someone you know, it's much harder to, to, to refleece that person with excess, excessive interest rates when you actually got a, a relationship with them. But it also makes it possible for, for lending to happen, which is not based on some abstract credit score, mm -hmm. um, but on actually the relationship you have with a person. So there's a lot to suggest that things like credit unions, kind of locally-based finance solutions... Uh, uh, can be a much better way of doing it than, as you say, the kind of payday lenders uh, who will often, um, well, you, you used to be able to kind of charge extortionate amounts of interest and lock people into slavery, as Basil would have put it, yes. uh, through loans which, which then they just simply cannot repay. Now, thankfully, partly as a result of the Archbishop's sort of intervention on this um, uh, five years ago, uh, is the war on Wonga, as it was, as it was called? Um, there is a limit now on on the, the amount of interest that can be charged, which is a which is a really good thing, and um, you know has brought in one of those safeguards that Calvin's pointing to. But I I, I think it I, I suppose I'm, the way I see it is in the Old Testament and in the in the early church that kind of prohibition on usury uh, was was actually about uh, banning a practice that was essentially abusive to the poor. Uh, what we're talking about in a different economy today is, as you were saying, Simon, um, something that allows money to be available more 
freely around society, which is, a, which is potentially a good thing. But there's still strict limits are to be there, and that's what the, what the kind of suspicion of usury in the Christian tradition uh, teaches us and tells us. Yes, it's permitted, but with real safeguards around it. And I think the relational thing, the community thing that you're talking about is is really important. <coughs> um, Michael Schluter in his mm. book, the, the R Factor, the Relationship Factor, mm. talks about relational distance, that we operate with our investments at relational distance. We don't know the companies, they don't know us. Mm. We at best yep. turn up once a year to vote the chairman, chairman mm. or, or chairwoman or usually a chairman, yeah. um, their huge salary, uh, and, and everybody's happy. Um, but he's, he was suggesting that it's much better when you you know that there's actually a relational a relationship there and not uh, relational distance. And, and that getting invested in a particular company where you know people is, is better than in ones that you have no idea who they are or what they're up to. Um, so today we have ranged over quite a field of questions. We started with, um, can God be surprised? Uh, is it right to be vegetarian as a Christian? We've ended up with, uh, can you borrow money on interest? I'm trying vaguely to think about some connection between those well, two I questions. Well, I think God might be very surprised at some of the things we've said. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's a good one. Very good. Anyway, um, Simon, thank you so much for joining thank us for been. this uh, episode of God Pod. Thank you. And um, thank you again, Michael. Thank you. And uh, goodbye. And no doubt we will be tuning into the next God Pod before too long. Goodbye. That was GodPod, a podcast from St Paul's Theological Centre. If you want to send us a question, just email it to godpod at htb.org. We can't promise to answer all the questions you send in, but we'll certainly try.